Good morning. Good to have you with us this morning. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to uh, Ephesians chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 15 through 19. Hey, by the way, was, uh, last weekend was the official day <clears throat> to turn in your Dare You to Move 2.5 commitment card. So we're still receiving these. Thank you so much for your generosity and your commitment there. You can see that our uh, current teaching series is Prayer Experiencing Awe and Intimacy with God. Man, I'm, I'm just loving this series. We're about, this is our second one into it, and we've got about... Uh, Six more to go, and today we're going to talk about the greatness of prayer. How many, uh, just by show of hands this morning, would say that you, this is one of those areas that you struggle in, in, in prayer, personal prayer? Show of hands, show of hands. You're all going to hell. <laughs> Welcome to Desert Breeze. And so, uh, okay, I'm kidding, but, uh, and we all struggle. We all struggle with prayer. And we're going to talk about that today. You'll see at the end of the notes, we're going to talk about the, really, it's, it's hardness, how difficult it is. And, uh, and this is really why we struggle. This is what you need to understand, is that the things that we uh, value, we prioritize. The things we prioritize, we practice. And if we're not practicing it like we should, it's because we haven't prioritized it. And the reason why we haven't prioritized it is because it's not a value. I know you say it is, but it really isn't, okay, because it, it's, it's lived out actually through our lives. We can say that it's a value, but it's, it really becomes really that value, and it shows that it's a value by how we, we live it out. And the reason why it's not really a value is probably because we have a real low view, low view of prayer. Oh, and, and by the way, the reason why we have a low view of prayer is because we have this really, really low view of God. Because, see, our, our prayer life rises or falls with our concept of not only prayer, but more importantly, with our concept of God. And as I said last weekend, now listen to me, if you had any, if you had any idea what he, the creator of the universe, thinks about you, feels about you, wants to do in and through your life, oh my goodness, nothing would keep you from him. And so what we have to do is regularly nurture, nurture that concept of God, that high view of God, which will give us a high view of prayer, which will, will make it a value, which will make it a priority, and then a practice in our life. You guys tracking with me? Does that make sense? So the issue isn't kind of like, come on, try harder, and I beat you up, you know, with fear and pride. Uh, but it's uh, fear and pride restrains the heart, but love transforms the heart. It's the love of God, so it's seeing his love. It's being ravished by his love. And the more that you begin to experience his love and know his love, oh my goodness, you just, you wanna spend time with him. Now let me give you a couple quotes here that kind of help to raise maybe your view of God, I hope they do. Prayers beyond any question, they're on your notes there. Prayers beyond any question, the highest activity of the human soul, man is at his greatest and highest when upon his knees, he comes face to face with God. That's Martin Lloyd-Jones. And then Tim Keller, 
In fact, this uh, series is based on his book by the same title, Prayer, Experiencing All and Intimacy with God. Listen to what Tim Keller says. The greatness of prayer is nothing but an extension of the greatness and glory of God in our lives. So if, you began to, if you would begin to see prayer like that, oh my goodness, it's an extension. I come face to face with God. It's an extension of the glory and the goodness of God or the glory and the greatness of God in and through my life. If I believe that, there's nothing that's gonna keep me from prayer. It's gonna certainly be a practice in my life. And so we're gonna be reading from Ephesians chapter one, verses 15 through 19. Wonderful text, and then we'll unpack these notes. You can see there's three sections we're looking at. This, it's supremacy as it relates to the greatness of prayer. It's supremacy, it's integrity, and then it's hardness, why we struggle with that. So would you bow your heads with me? Let's go once again before the throne of grace. <clears throat> Father God, it is astounding that through the sacrificial love of your son on the cross, you have reconciled us uh, to you forever. And the highest activity of our soul is through the greatness of being face to face with you in prayer as you extend your greatness and glory in and through our lives. So we pray, show us wonderful things from your word through the work of your Holy Spirit and may our concept of prayer and most importantly, our concept of you cause our prayer life to soar to the heavens, giving us a taste of heaven on earth for your glory and our indescribable and indestructible joy in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. Uh, this text, by the way, if you struggle with prayer, it's always good to kind of uh, pray the prayers that are in the Bible. This is one of the many prayers that are found in the Bible. And this is the Apostle Paul, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now, here's his prayer. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. This is the word knowledge here. There's, there's uh, one English word for two Greek words for knowledge. Uh, so this one English word is knowledge, and there's two Greek words for it, two Greek understandings. One Greek understanding is that it's just a matter of facts. It's accumulating facts. And uh, the second word for knowledge is what is here, and that's just not an accumulation of facts, but it's an experiencing of those facts. Gnosko is, is really the, uh, the Greek word for that. So it's not just facts, you know facts about God, you're experiencing those facts deep within your heart, that's what it means. So it's one thing to know that honey is sweet, it's another to have that sweetness on your tongue and to be experiencing it, that's what that word means that he would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge. We're talking intimate relationship with God. And then he explains what that looks like, how that works its way out in our life. Having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, so this is what's happening through this knowledge of God, that you may know what is the hope. The hope is not wishful thinking. That's confident, joyful expectation. It's a guarantee. You just know. You live with a sense of... God's big, he's bigger than my problems, he's gonna see me through this, great things are happening and are gonna happen in my life. So what is the hope to which he has called you? And check this out, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Not only does he see unbelievable value in us, but there's, there's value in us because he's placed his Holy Spirit within us. And in fact, this makes us, um, 
Hey, you need to know that even the wealthiest billionaire in this world has nothing on us, okay? Based on what he's saying here. All the money in the world can't give you what he's talking about here as it relates to riches. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And, and then, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power? So he's talking hope, riches, power, enlighten, eyes of your heart, because of this intimate relationship with God. And so, this power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. And then he continues on, he talks about that working of his great power is the Holy Spirit. And then we know in Romans 8, 11, it says the same, the spirit, if the spirit who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, then he will make alive your mortal body. <laughs> so you got some really great things in store for you. Uh, you're gonna live a completely, totally different life because you're in connection with the creator of the universe. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. So let's unpack this. This is wonderful. Here's your first fill in the blank. It's supremacy. We're talking the greatness of, of prayer. It's supremacy. The most important thing God could give to us is to have the eyes of our hearts enlightened in order to know him better. That's what we see in this text. Now, if you did a quick comparison of this prayer, and then there's another prayer. You want to learn how to pray? There's another prayer in the third chapter of this same book, Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 19. And then there's another prayer that Paul prays in Philippians 1, 9 through 11, and then in Colossians 1, uh, 9 through 14. And so when you do a quick comparison of all of these prayers that Paul prays, and, and you begin to discover how... He typically prayed for those that he loved. And what is remarkable about these prayers is that when he prays for his friends, his prayers contain no appeals for changes in their circumstances. I mean, I mean, in spite of the fact that they lived in the midst of many dangers and hardships, their existence was far less secure than ours, obviously, and uh, they had persecution, death, disease, separation from loved ones. And yet in these prayers, you don't see one petition for better life circumstances. Circumstance enhancement kind of prayers. God, this miserable boss that I have, would you get rid of him? You know, those kind of prayers. You know, or, you know, my kids are so bratty, God uh, transformed their lives so that they're not so bratty. Which, by the way, those aren't bad prayers. Okay, they're not bad, bad prayers. In fact, when we go through, at, towards the end of the series, we're gonna go through, this, um, through the Lord's Prayer, and there's actually petitions in there that talk about, you know, kind of circumstance enhancement. Give, me, give us today our daily bread. That would be kind of circumstance enhancement. We're gonna starve if we don't get some food. And, and, and then uh, make sure that the devil doesn't, you know, dog us so much anymore or whatever. You know, lead us not to t into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one as the prayer ends. And so Paul believed that the most important thing God could give them was to have the uh, eyes of their hearts enlightened in order that they may know him. So we need to talk about that. We need to unpack that a little bit. Well, what does that mean? How does that apply to our lives? And take a look at the next point. So let's talk about the heart. The heart is the control center of the entire self. Now, the Bible uses this word heart some 900 times. Pretty, really important, okay? to say the least. And when it talks about the heart, this is what it is, I put it on your notes. It is the warehouse of one's core commitments, deepest loves, and most foundational hopes that control our thoughts, feelings, and actions. 
So when we try to bring about life change, I mean, if you just look around, typically what we focus on would be our actions. Ah, you know, behavior modification or feelings. I shouldn't feel this way. I need to feel better about myself. Or we focus on thoughts, can't think those negative thoughts, which all is good, but you've got to get much deeper than that if you're going to really experience transformation. You've got to get to the heart. It's the core of who we are. And when you begin to transform the heart, which is the control center, which is, it is the warehouse of one's core commitments, it really comes down to what you're committed to, deepest loves and most foundational hopes. So that's what you're really trying to change. And then, then your thoughts, feelings, and actions will change as a result of that. Proverbs 4.23 says, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. In other words, it's the course in which you're going in life. So if you really look at it, at American, uh, Americans through the self-help industry, which is a billion-dollar industry, typically they focus on that. They don't focus on the deeper things. And by the way, a lot of churches only focus on behavioral modification, feelings, and thoughts, and they never get down to that area of the heart. And that's, that's, really, that's really important for us if we're going to experience change. Above all else, above all else, above all else, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Now, to have the eyes of your heart enlightened with a particular truth, it means to get a hold of, it's where a particular truth gets a hold of us so deeply that it changes our whole person. That's what it means to have the eyes of your heart enlightened. In other words, we may know that God is holy, but when our heart's eyes are enlightened to the truth, then we not only understand it intellectually. What does it mean to be holy? It means that he has no rivals or imperfections. That's what it means to be holy. He's in categories beyond categories. So I begin to understand that intellectually. So that begins to change me intellectually about the thoughts that I, that I think. So as we're singing that song, holy, oh my goodness, God, you're in categories beyond categories. You are perfect in every way and you have no rivals, which that makes me really happy because I'm, I'm part of his you know, family and he's gonna take good care of me. And so, that, so that's gonna stir me emotionally. So this begins to affect us emotionally. We find God's holiness wonderful and beautiful. Why? Because I've never been more secure in his unrivaled and perfect, loving, wise control of my life. He's holy in his love He's holy in his wisdom. He's holy in his power, unrivaled. It's perfect in every way. But I start stressing out in direct proportion, so I don't believe that. And so, and, and, and so that works from my thoughts into my emotions and then volitionally my will. You know, I begin to avoid attitudes and behavior that would displease or dishonor or, or misrepresent him. I begin to live a different kind of life. And it, it just becomes, it overflows from my life because I'm convinced that uh, I'm in his holy, loving, wise control. Uh, in other words, uh, he has no rivals, no imperfections. He's going to take care of me. He's going to see me through. There's a verse uh, this last week that I uh, came across that just, man, it really stood out to me. I just loved, loved the verse. I meditated on it for most of the day. And it's found in uh, Psalm 26, 3. And it says, for your steadfast love is before my eyes and I walk in your faithfulness. 
So it was both compelling and convicting because I recognized that when I lose sight of his steadfast love, because he's saying, your steadfast love is before my eyes, so it has that little bit of that idea, and I think it's the same thing of understanding that the eyes of our heart being enlightened in this knowledge of him and realizing, oh my goodness, I mean, I have this, as we said, I have this hope, I have riches, I have power, I have everything I need, and so we lose sight of that steadfast love, and when we do, what happens? We don't walk in his faithfulness, we walk in really unfaithfulness or faithlessness. And and when I begin to experience anxiety or bitterness or anger inordinately, it dominates my life, it's because I've lost sight of his, I need the eyes of my heart enlightened because I've lost sight of his steadfast love. By the way, his steadfast love, when the Bible talks about his steadfast love, this is the love you have been looking for your whole life. I mean, this is the love that you have been I got something in my eye right then just as I was uh, saying that. Enlighten my eyes, Lord, here. I need help. Something fell into my eyes. Okay. So, um, where was I? Steadfast love. Yeah, steadfast love. Oh, this is the love you've been longing for your whole life. His steadfast love. His love is better than, than life, 63.3. His love is better than life. Do you believe that? Do you understand that? Are you living in the reality of that? If not, you need to have the eyes of your heart enlightened. You're not living as it says here. Uh, it says here, for your steadfast love is before my eyes. I walk in your faithfulness. Nothing can separate you from that love either, according to the second part of Romans 8. Next point on your notes. Without an enlightened heart, good circumstances can lead to overconfidence. Good circumstances can lead to overconfidence or even actually spiritual indifference. I mean, we we do, and I see it all the time. I see people get all fired up for God and it, it goes for a little while because it's not a deep, deep kind of being fired up and uh, you know their job's going well and the kids are all behaving and they've got a nice car and a nice home and all those things and they put God on the shelf and they, they begin to come to church less frequently and, and, uh, and that happens, that happens and so with, um, without an enlightened heart good circumstances can lead to overconfidence or even spiritual indifference and bad circumstances can lead to discouragement, even despair because God is an abstraction rather than our most satisfying reality. So it doesn't matter whether you have good or bad, good or bad circumstances, because if you have God, the the good circumstances are leavable and the bad circumstances are durable. You can get through them. It doesn't matter. It's not going to fluctuate your sense of confidence deep within you. Now, what you need to understand before we move on, we each have an outer and an inner life. So we're going to dive into this really deep. Uh, this morning. We each have an outer and inner life. Our outer life is our public, visible performance and reputation. Our inner life is our private, invisible thoughts, hopes, and dreams. Because our inner life is visible, I'm sorry, because of our inner life is invisible, it's easy to neglect. We tend to kind of focus more on our Behavioral modification and, you know, what's our appearance and what do people think and I, be, I need to do a better job here and we fail to work on, on the inner life. Because our inner life is invisible, it's easy to neglect. Now, 
if your inner life is healthy, in other words, the eyes of your heart are enlightened and you're beginning to understand more and more that you have this hope, the riches, the power through this intimate relationship with God, this steadfast love that is better than life, nothing can ever separate you from his love. If your inner life is healthy, no external circumstance can destroy your life. If your inner life is unhealthy, you're not seeing God, you're checking the church box, kind of going through the motions, you're not having this this experience, this taste of honey on your mouth, so to speak. You're not experiencing God in your life. If your inner life is unhealthy, no external circumstance can save your life. All the circumstance enhancement isn't going to help you. Your, circumstance, uh, your circumstances matter far less to your happiness than what you think. We are so bombarded in our society today thinking that happiness is one purchase away or, or just a different you know, job promotion or having these people like us or whatever, and that's simply not the case. It doesn't last. It's, it, doesn't, it doesn't ultimately satisfy. It is your inner life that makes your life heaven or hell. That's why Paul is praying this prayer. That's why this is a wonderful prayer for us. This is what we should be praying every day for our lives. God, open the eyes of my heart. Let me see you unlike I've ever seen you before. So it's a great prayer. Next point on your notes. So prayer is not merely a way to get things from God, but a way to get more of God himself. Prayer is striving to take hold of God, Isaiah 64, 7. So... If you are looking to created things to give you the, the hope, the riches, the power that only the creator can give you, it's inevitable that those created things will inevitably break your heart. It's just a matter of time. If you're looking you know, to, to relationships or money in the bank or this job, it's going to break your heart. It's inevitable. Um, Let's talk just for a moment before we move on to integrity. It's integrity. Prayer's integrity is that this world's peace is sporadic based on the ever-changing circumstances. Christian peace is constant based on the never-changing love of Christ. That's why we need the eyes of our heart enlightened so we can have this knowledge and understand the hope and the riches and the power uh, so let's, let's, go, let's go a little deeper than that, okay? Because that's where we go with this next point, okay? As if we haven't gone deep enough. But you gotta really understand this, this integrity. So we're talking greatness of prayer. We talked about the supremacy of it and how it works in our lives, but now we gotta look at the integrity. If we give priority to our outer life, our inner life, our heart will be dark and scary. We will not know what to do with solitude, be uncomfortable with self-examination, and have an increasingly short attention span for any kind of reflection. So those three things, there's one more we'll look at in just a moment. And so we're going to have this, uh, we're going to really struggle with solitude, self-examination, and reflection. How many of you have ever done this before? You're, uh, you're going to do some research on the internet, maybe for school, work, or maybe it's just for your personal growth, and you, you type in Google or whatever, and you get, it comes up with a page, and you go, oh, that looks good. You hit this page, you go, oh, that's exactly what I want. But there's something over here on the side column that you go, wow, I've always wanted to know that. 
and you click that, it takes you to another page that you're beginning to explore and then you find something else on that page that you go, oh, I've always wanted to know that. And you click that and before you know it, you're about five or six clicks away from your original intention and you don't even know what your original intention was anymore, okay? Anybody there? Yeah. Yeah, I was, I was talking with my wife about that, and I said, you know what's so crazy about, you know, the difference between, you know, we used to read from paper, and now we read more electronic, and you're, and you're studying away, and then all of a sudden, you know, a little message pops up that your friend wants to show you what he's eating for lunch, okay? <laughs> and, you, and you go there. And then you go, where, what was I doing? Oh, well, it doesn't matter. I mean, we're so easily distracted. And I tell my wife that, and she goes, well, I hate to disagree with you, but there were times that I was very distracted with the paper book, too, you know, the, reading that, because she said that she would follow cross-references until she had forgotten where she even had started. You guys know what I'm talking about there? Where you go, hey, that looks interesting. Let me follow this cross-reference over here, and then you go from there to another one, and then to another one, and then it's like, what was I studying? And, and I'll tell you what, this distractedness is hurting us from seeing and, and experiencing God in our lives. That's the day that we live in. We are so distracted, and sometimes we purposely want to be distracted because we can't bear to, th- to even reflect on what's going on within us. And so it becomes a form of medita- uh, medication. We're medicating ourselves. And, uh, and we're missing out on what it says in Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I'm God. We can't be still. We're easily distracted. We, we struggle with solitude. We get bored easy. Oh, oh, oh I got to do something. I got to play. I got to play video games. Got to do this. Got to do that. We're constantly filling our lives. We don't know how to sit still and relax and reflect and do self-examination and say, hey, God, what, what are you wanting to speak to me? Where are you? What are you doing in my life? And, and ask ourselves really hard questions. By the way, Psalm 4610, you've heard it before in the message. It says, step out of the traffic and take a long, loving look at me, your high God. And so therefore, we must ruthlessly eliminate hurry and even distractions from our lives if we're going to learn how to really focus in on God, be still and know that I'm God. Here's the next uh, thing that it does too. Even more seriously, our lives will lack integrity. We become game players and mask wearers and won't know how to go into the inner rooms of the heart and deal with it. We turn ourselves really into hypocrites. That's why it tells us in Ephesians 4.26, be angry but don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. You know, listen to me. Every, everyone, look up here real quick. You guys need to understand this, that some of us have piled uh, hurt and heartache and pain upon over and over. There's these layers deep within our heart. We don't even know where the bottom is because we're, we're, not, we're not processing the, the junk in our life. And that's the reason why we're so on edge and so overreact to certain circumstances and things in our life because we're not processing, we're not working through those things. Don't be angry, it says, or it says be angry, but don't sin. We can be angry, but it's how we process it. Don't let the sun go down on, on your anger. He's saying process that, think deep, reflect, have moments of solitude. And, and you've gotta deal with just the fact that you can't do that, you have a hard time doing that, there's something wrong. 
If you're struggling with those moments of solitude, you're, you're desperately needing that. Matthew 15, 8 through 9, Jesus said, these people worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They're just going through the motions. I hope you're not here just going through the motions, wondering, hey, when is this over? This guy's kind of long-winded. What's going on with this place, man? I'm really hungry right now. I mean, where's your thoughts going even right now? What do you, I mean, as you try to keep bringing your thoughts back to what we're focusing in on, I mean, that's a lot of work. I understand that. I'm really ADD. I mean, I can so easy, you, know, you saw me scratching my eye and I'm forgetting where I even am. But you gotta work, you gotta work at that. You gotta keep bringing yourself back. Are you going through the motions? Are you checking the box? Or is this truly an encounter with God? It's interesting, he also says in Matthew 23, 25, woe to you. The word woe just means, oh my goodness, you're on a path that's destructive. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You look good on the outside, looking pretty good there. Your nice clean clothes sitting there with your Bible in hand. In fact, I even saw you kind of raise your hand during the worship time. Looking good. What's going on inside your heart? What's happening right there? Next point on your notes, to discover the real you, look at what you spend time thinking about. When no one is looking, when nothing is forcing you to think about anything in particular. Matthew 6, 21, it says, where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. So we're, we're getting to that, the, the deeper issues of our life. Luke 6, 43 through 45, it talks about there that uh, you can tell a tree by its fruit and the fruit is determined by its roots. You gotta get down to the root system. So, so how do you change your behavior? How do you do, that's what we're talking about. I wanna start praying more. I wanna learn how to do that and really connect with God. How do you do that? You gotta change what you worship. It's about changing your heart, changing your values. You're, you're all worshiping. We worship every day. It's nonstop because we are worshipers by nature. So you gotta begin to identify what is it that you're worshiping and how do you know what you're worshiping? You have to ask yourself, what dominates my thoughts? What stirs my deepest emotions? What moves me to action? What gets me out of bed in the morning? Why do I do what I do? Who am I doing this for? But most importantly, begin to look at your thoughts and um, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God is, is an idol. And uh, I, I, when I began to discover this, this was revolutionary for me. Because I realized when I lay in bed at night trying to go to sleep, those times of solitude, God wasn't dominating my thoughts. My job, my work, my performance, my perfectionism, brain debates on what people had said to me back and forth, my people pleasing. <clears throat> and, mom, and I realized, oh my goodness, that's what's more important to me than what you've said about me, God. These things are more important to me than spending time with you and knowing you. And that's where, I mean, if you're truly loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, he would dominate your solitude. That when you're laying in bed at night, you can't help but want to think about him and enjoy him and celebrate his presence in your life and interact with him. Because he's the love of your life. You've never been more loved. You've never experienced more love in your life than what you have in him. It's been a while because you, you don't have any solitude. There's no deep reflection. There's no self-examination. And there, therefore, there's that lack of, of integrity. And, uh, and so we, we struggle with that. And so, you know, I was thinking this morning, one of the ways that we'll kind of, as we head into the service, is so, so I've kind of admitted my idols, and we'll start on this side of the room, and we'll bring the mic up, and we'll go ahead and have you come up and... 
Okay, let's start on this side of the room over here. I mean, I ought to be able to come to you and you ought to be able to tell me, hey, here's my idols. The guys that I meet with on Thursday, uh, I know what their idols are. And uh, one of them in particular tells me about his idols all the time that he struggles with. And it's totally different from my idols. And, uh, and so you ought to be able to know, what is it, what is it that's um, competing in your heart for your deep passion and allegiance away from God? There is something, there's something in your life. It could be your kids, it could be your marriage, or getting married, or what is it? You, you, you need to know that. You haven't done enough deep reflection. You haven't allowed the Holy Spirit to speak to you. And here's the next point. If, if you aren't joyful, humble, and faithful in private before God, then what you want to appear to be in public won't match what you truly are. See, uh, who you are on your knees before God is who you really are. Well, I don't really spend too much time on my knees before God. Well, that's telling who you truly are. He's not really a value in your life. So who you are on your knees before God is who you truly are when you have that openness and honesty before God. Matthew 6, 5 and 6, this is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus talking about the Lord's Prayer. But when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites who like to go out on the street corners and make a big deal and pray so that everybody can applaud them. And, and he says they receive their reward. But he says you don't want to be like that. This is what you want to be like. Go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father, oh, I love this. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Oh, my goodness. I want that. I love that. I, I want more of that. He will reward you. He will meet with you. You will know God unlike ever before. Jesus is saying that the infallible test of spiritual integrity is your private prayer life. And of course, you know, we all pray when required by cultural or social expectations. It's at the family dinner, in our small group, or, you know, we are kind of praying here when people are watching us, you know, raising our hands and worshiping God. And especially we pray when we have anxiety caused by troubling circumstances. But if you have a genuine relationship with God as Father, you will want to pray even though nothing on the outside is pressing you to do so. Because you just love spending time with Him. And if you don't, it's because you have a low view of prayer and, and more importantly, you have a low view of God. And uh, here's another verse that, that really spoke to me this last week as I, was, as I read through the Bible every year. It's, it's found in that same chapter, Psalm 26, 8. And it says, Oh, Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. That's, what, what is he saying? This is what he's saying. He's saying, there's nothing more satisfying than your presence. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have his presence. And you can practice his presence. You just have to learn how to do that. And you've got to get rid of the distractions in your life and get rid of hurry from your life and learn to reflect and do the self-examination and really looking into your life and having those times of solitude. I have a, a friend of mine that, uh, that he's a phenomenal intercessory prayer guy. And, uh, and I was talking to him one time. I go, man, you're, you're a phenomenal intercessory prayer guy. You pray for everything. And I think that's wonderful. And he looked at me like, 
And I asked him, you know, I kind of looked at him and said, yeah, that's really wonderful. And he goes, I love, I love his presence. I go, wow. That's why you do it, isn't it? He just loves the presence of God. And he loves praying. And, and, and through that, he's able to pray for all kinds of needs around him. Isn't that fascinating? It made me want to spend time with God. It made me, he just says, man, I love the presence of God. I just absolutely love the presence of God. That's no big deal. That's what he was saying. No big deal. I just love his presence. So, if you regularly praise God for who he is and what he has done for you in private, then you'll be a more positive and joyful person in public. See, this is what I struggled with as a pastor. I knew that as a pastor, there's certain behaviorals, you know, behavioral things that I need to do. I need to make sure that I really help and bless and pray and do all these things, and I gotta make sure that I have the right word for these people, and ah, what am I supposed to do? Help me. And God said, hey, 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 come here. Come here, dude. You know, uh, he didn't call me dude, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, I think more like silly or something like that. But he says, here, listen. If you will just cultivate in private this level of intimacy with you so that I can so fill up your life, then you don't need to worry about what's going down in public. Then that will just naturally overflow your life. And oh my goodness, it's true. That the more I thank him and praise him and enjoy him because he becomes the, the object of my worship, not what people think or getting through the list of to-dos or whatever it is, my work performance, it's him, it's him alone. And then that just becomes, begins to overflow my life. If you regularly, humbly confess your sins before God in private, you'll be less critical of others and more open and honest about your own shortcomings in public. I mean, you just be, yep because you're already talking with him about these things. If you regularly enjoy his presence privately, then you're speaking about what a blessing your faith is and how much you love God won't be pretense but will naturally overflow, overflow your public life. Here's the next point in your notes. Giving priority to the inner life doesn't mean an individualistic life. Knowing the God of the Bible better can't be achieved by yourself. So here's your two fill in the blanks. Corporate and private prayer are a necessity. So your Christian friends see and experience Jesus Christ in ways that you will never know or love unless you get to know and love your Christian friends. They have perspective about God. You'll never get until you get to know them and begin to understand that and that overflows your life. Okay, let's talk about the hardness. We're almost finished. Let's talk about the hardness of prayer. There is nothing great that is also easy. That's why prayer is one of the hardest things in the world. If you struggle greatly in this, you are not alone. I struggle with this. And if you struggle, you're not alone. We all struggle. Now, in his classic book on prayer, The Still Hour, 19th century theologian, uh, Austin Phelps starts with the chapter absence of God in prayer based on Job 23.3. Listen to what Job 23.3 says. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, God. You ever felt like that praying? Show of hands? Okay. A lot of us. Yeah, I feel like sometimes my prayers aren't even going beyond the ceiling and I feel like I'm talking to the wall. Welcome to the club. 
We all struggle with it. That's what he's saying. Phelps' book begins with the premise that a consciousness of absence of God is one of the standing incidents of religious life or spiritual life. Next point on your notes. The first thing we learn in attempting to pray is our spiritual emptiness. That's the first thing you're going to learn. But we must press on and move from duty to delight. So prayer begins with emptiness because we are so used to being empty that we don't recognize it as such until we start to pray and read our Bible and then we find ourselves not experiencing what Pastor Ray talks about or anybody else talks about how wonderful it is. And it exposes our emptiness. I'm not experiencing what he's talking about, nor am I experiencing what some of the people in my small group talk about. And they talk about it in such a lip-smacking way that I want that. And the first thing we learn is, is the emptiness in our own lives. And so we have to come to terms with that. My wife and I uh, ride a, a tandem bike. And, uh, of course, I'm on the front. And she's in the back. Talk about backseat driver, by the way. And I swear up and down she's got her feet up most of the time. But we, we go out on this eight-mile uh, you know, figure eight kind of course right in our neighborhood. And I'm telling you what, that first two miles on that bike, here's our conversation. Oh my goodness, my, my back's hurting. Oh, my legs are hurting. Oh, I'm, I'm, oh my, I don't know if we can make it. No, I don't think we can make it either. Oh, I think we're going to struggle. How about we go to Culver's and get one of their custards? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a great idea. Let's go get a custard. Yeah, one of those, uh, one of those, yeah. Oh my goodness, one of those turtles, you know, where they've got those roasted pecans and smothered in chocolate and caramel. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we get through that first two miles and our body's feeling a little bit more warmed up and we're feeling a little better. We're saying, hey, let's go another two miles. And then that next two miles, man, we're feeling even a little better because we pushed beyond that quitting point. And before long, when we hit that next, I mean, when we hit that, like by that six and, you know, that actually more like two, four, we start heading into six and seven, you know, right in there, we begin to experience more of that endorphin release where you get that feeling of well-being. Some of you don't even know what I'm talking about because you never pushed beyond even stopping walking around the block. What is endorphin release? Those of you that work out know exactly what I'm talking about. When you first start, it's like, Ugh! and then you push on beyond that, and you go, oh, I'm ready to take on the world until you wake up the next morning, and then you're ready to, huh? I'm never going to do that again. But you do. You have to. You got to work through the soreness. You know, and I find a lot of interesting parallels to, to prayer. The first thing we learn in attempting to pray is our spiritual emptiness, but we must press on and move from duty to delight. And so we get, we've gotten to the point now, and we just know that the first couple miles, man, it's going to be hideous. <laughs> it's going to be hard. So we just hang in there. And uh, we just hang in there, and we work through it, and then it's, we start feeling better, and we're glad we did. And then we go to Culver's and get that custard, uh, <laughs> because we've earned it. That's what we tell ourselves. That's crazy. Next, last point here. When your prayer life begins to flourish, the efforts, the effects, the effects can be remarkable. I, I gave you a couple verses there. It talks about seeking God with all your heart. That's really what it's about. Are you going to push beyond that 30 minutes where you're not feeling anything or hour or whatever? You're going to keep coming back. Even you have a few days or a few weeks where you're not, you just keep at it. You keep at it. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Jeremiah 29 
13. I mean, there have been times I have been so filled with self-pity and be justifying resentment and anger, and then I sit down to pray, and the reorientation that comes before God's face reveals my pettiness, the pettiness of my feelings. It's almost like an instant I begin to realize, what am I thinking? Oh, this is crazy. I have you in my life. Or I'll, I'll be filled with anxiety or stress or worry, and during prayer I come to wonder what I was even worried about. I begin to laugh at myself and thank God for who he is and what he's done and going to do through my life. Intimacy with God. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's, uh, let's pray. We're gonna take communion here in just a moment. And uh, I'm gonna give you an opportunity. Communion is a means of grace, very sacred time when we remember the extravagant and sacrificial love of Christ for us and the fullness of life he came to give to us. If It's only for believers, but you can become a believer through this prayer. I'm gonna pray and feel free to take communion with us. Father God, we we acknowledge our sin, and sin is preferring anything more than you. And we know that that sin separates us from you, and we believe that these communion elements that we're about to take of, the the bread represents your broken body, the grape juice represents your shed blood. On the cross, forgiving us of all of our sins, that is amazing, God. Reconciling us to you, and we now confess you, Jesus Christ, as our Savior and Lord. If you've never done that before, that would be a good time to do it, just between you and God. Open your heart to him. Father, we thank you for the greatness of prayer, the awe, intimacy, struggle, yet the way to reality. There's nothing more important or harder or richer or more life-changing There's absolutely nothing more satisfying to our soul and liberating to our lives than coming face to face with you. We do that now in Jesus' name through communion. Amen.